This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Tori Walker. Well, Joanne, it's a delight to be here in person. I was just saying I haven't done an in-person interview for so long. It's all been on Zoom, so the sound will be good. <laughs> Which is great good. to be able to do face to face. It is, isn't it? So Joanne, I'm here because I heard you talking about your ministry at an event a couple of months ago. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. But I'd love to start by finding out how you came to faith in Christ. My dad got saved when he was about 16. But he um, became a, a manager of a very big company. And as sometimes things happen, you tend to slide away from the things of God. And he did for a time. So we really never grew up going to Sunday school or anything like that. But I always had this amazing like God consciousness. And I remember even as a child writing letters to God and asking him to take them. And I'd come and check every day whether they were still there. You know, I remember when I got married, I'd be walking and walk past a church and just had this great desire to go to church. But then I thought at that stage, oh, my husband's probably not going to really... Uh, want to go with me but then uh, we had our first child and um, she was about nine months old and I just really felt you know what there's a little Baptist church up the road from us I'm just going to go and so mum and dad one of my sisters and myself and we went into this little church and I think they thought all their Christmases had come at once because it was this big family you know walking through the front door then when I heard the gospel it was like my reaction to it was I've been ripped off like why didn't somebody tell me this obviously I accepted the Lord and um, then my husband a few weeks later which was a little bit of a funny story too because um, after getting saved I went home and I read through the New Testament four times I was just so hungry I remember saying one time my husband came home from work and I he, he said, you know, you look sad. And I said, I am sad because, you know, if you were to die and I was to die, I'd go to heaven and you wouldn't be with me, you know, and it was just so raw and real to me. And anyway, he says, it's okay, I'll come to church with you. And so, you know, he got saved as well. So that was an amazing journey. I do look back on it and laugh now because I have been in the ministry. I've been a pastor for many years before coming in to do what I'm doing now um, and so now I can kind of understand it from the other side but I would have so many questions so I was at every Bible study every prayer meeting and I wasn't just content with the you know just the um, I guess standard answer to everything I was so inquisitive and I remember the pastor he would like literally duck for cover when he saw me and it was not that I was in any way trying to I guess you know be obnoxious or anything like but I was so hungry and so then it was like okay I'm on a mission I felt like I felt ripped off so I'm thinking everyone's going to feel the same because it's just that they haven't heard so here I was on a mission to save my family save everyone around me 
I started an after school club and at that stage, you know, we didn't have all the regulations we have now and there was a school just opposite where we lived. So I asked the pastor if I could start an after school club and he said, sure, but I was just this new Christian, so I knew nothing. But I went to the principal, got all of these kids one day a week and we'd march them up to the church and we'd have this great afternoon. And I was literally learning the Bible stories that week before I actually was telling the children because I was so new, it was so brand new. And then started a play group you know, there, which even today, we've got mums that were saved through that play group that I'm connected with, and that's been a, a real joy. So, yeah, I was one of these ones that kind of got a bit radically saved. <laughs> and, oh, um, yeah, and so my poor pastor, I do look back now and think, you poor thing, I totally get it now. <laughs> I totally understand where you saw me coming. Oh, no, here she comes again. What is she going to ask me this time? <laughs> To be fair, you sort of knew nothing about the Bible or about the gospel before, and then all of a sudden yeah. you just wanted to know everything. So. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that's why I was at every Bible study. My, you know, we had a nine month old baby. She came everywhere with me. She learned to just sleep under the, you know, the church seats. The, you know, she was just, <laughs> she grew up with that. And were you a bit of a go getter personality before that? anyway and yeah god used that too <laughs> yep i guess i was yeah i probably didn't see it like that but yeah give me a cause and a mission you know it's something that god's placed in my heart and i'm a little bit like a um a dog with a bone i kind of don't let it go too easily <laughs> thank you for sharing that story it's lovely to hear and you mentioned that you were a pastor for a while how did that come about we lived up in Burpengary when our children were growing up. So, you know, we were always involved in church life and I was always involved in ministry of some sort. I would lead the Bible studies and, you know, you name it, I was in it. So I always had a heart for people, always had a heart for ministry. And then uh, my husband and I and the children moved back to Brisbane when they were sort of just at that age where we felt like they needed to be kind of closer into the city for job opportunities and a whole range of things. It was at that stage we started to go to, well, it was back then it was called Northside Christian Church, but now it's called Nexus. They had a position going for the bookkeeper's position and they approached me for that. And I'm like, are you crazy? You're wanting me to do your books? Like, you know. Was that <laughs> I mean, not your background? It wasn't my background. I could do it because I actually did um, some book work for a friend who ran, you know, a medium-sized business. So I did kind of know my way around a bit. But I'm just thinking, like, this is a big church. Like, you don't want someone like me. Anyway, I went to the uh, interview, which was a really funny one um, because... I did everything I could to convince them I wasn't the right person and I said to them look you know you I'm sure you want someone with more experience than me and so anyway they offered me the position but that was just God's way of getting me on staff and that wasn't definite because I spent more time praying in the church about my job every day trying to get my head around what I had to do than being in my office in the beginning um, and then uh, probably nine months after that, Pastor John called me in the office and he said, look, you know, I really see this in you. And then um, he offered me a position on staff and that kind of just evolved over time until I eventually really was, you know, like his associate in the end. So, yeah, so it was a bit of a journey through all of that. Absolutely. And so what kind of things did you do when you were in that role? 
So I started off looking after, as you do, I was the only female on staff, you know, a bit of a pioneer back in that time. He said, look, I'd like you to start in the women's ministry, um, which I did, but also the care arm that we had. So I was doing all the community things and all of, you know, the women's ministry, which was quite a, because it was a big church, you know, 1500 people. So it was quite a lot of work to do. But over time, my portfolio just kept expanding and expanding. And I would often have this joke with them saying you know look you guys look at my portfolio look at yours this is kind of not equal here (laughs) we often laugh about that I did all sorts of things like you know new Christians you know you name it I think I worked in just about every portfolio except for the men's ministry (laughs) (laughs) excellent (laughs) I'm sure they could have used you in that as well (laughs) and I loved preaching and I loved all of that so yeah it was it was a a great opportunity. Pastor John was a fantastic um, mentor and yeah loved him dearly and was very sad when he went home to be with the Lord recently. And then how did you come to be in this position that you're in? Well why don't you first tell people your role? Sure. So currently I'm the um, CEO of Teen Challenge Queensland So we're a non-for-profit organisation and our mission statement is that we bring God's hope and healing to broken young lives. So we run residential rehabilitation centres for those that are really suffering with addiction and things that are related to that, um, like, you know, self-harm, there's often eating disorders and a mental health issues, a whole range of things. So uh, we have residential facilities in Toowoomba, our separate men's and women's facility, and we also run uh, crisis accommodation for young men in Brisbane who are at risk of homelessness. And, you know, outside of that, we do other areas of ministry as well with families, and so I have a family support worker, and we do run assessments out of our head office in Brisbane as well, and so there's a whole range of other things that sort of sit around that, and a schools program that we're just sort of starting off at with at the moment as well. So, yeah, there's lots of exciting things happening. Yes, and so how did you come to be involved with Teen Challenge? When I finished that time of pastoring at um, Northside, I I felt God had spoken to me very clearly about the end of the season. And strangely enough, I did go to work in corporate for a little while, but then um, I really felt God speaking to me about working for the government, and uh, which I thought was like, whoa, way out there, because I'd never worked for government before. And um, so I thought, thought the only way I could do that is to really go through an employment agency, which I did. And I said, well, God, if this is of you, you just place me where you want me to be. They sat me down, showed me how to log onto the computer and said, oh, well, the person that was supposed to train you has actually um, been seconded and the executive director's just back from six months secondment. So I was left there on my own. They speak a different language in government. It's all acronyms. And so I was just like, wow. So, but, you know, that's been the story of my life. I don't think I've ever been, God's ever placed me anywhere where I have not been thrown in the deep end. So after the first week, I just jokingly said to the executive director, well, look, I'm really sorry that you've had to put up with me for a week. You know, this is my first um, contract with government. It's kind of been the blind leading the blind here. (laughs) And he was going, no way. He said, I can't believe you've never worked for government before. You are fantastic. I want you to... And I'm like, is this guy from another planet? Like... (laughs) Has he kind of been seeing this the way I have? But anyway, he was so convinced that I was the best thing since sliced bread that he decided, you know, we're going to do everything to keep her, which he did. 
I applied for another position and ended up working with one of the deputy director generals. So it was this like you just knew it was. And for people who don't know government, that's pretty high up, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, um, a mutual friend had told me about this position at Teen Challenge that came up, and I totally rejected it. I said, absolutely no way, that's not me. Because it felt too big or too small? or No, because I felt like they need someone who understands addiction and who's experienced in all of these areas. So three times they came to me to ask me to apply and three times I said no. The fourth time we were on a family vacation and I had a phone call from this mutual friend and said, I know you've said th- no three times and I've told them that, but they've actually come back again and said, look, if she's the least bit interested we will you know we'd like to um talk with her and then at that fourth time i got off the phone i said to my husband you know what honey i actually i've got to go talk to these people i was kind of like the reluctant applicant that god virtually had to kick through the door only because i really didn't think that it was you know that i had the expertise for what they needed but when i got into the role i certainly realized that um that I did and the whole that whole time in government was so invaluable to me because I learned to have to deal with politicians and ministers and you know a whole range of so those sorts of things didn't phase me and you know and I learned I guess you know the government processes and all of that so that sort of thing was invaluable to me plus my pastoring background plus the time I'd spent in corporate as well so yeah, it, it kind of all, you know, God is amazing, isn't he? How he weaves everything together. Yeah, so that that's a bit of the journey of how I got here. <laughs> that is one heck of a journey, I've just got to say. <laughs> really, isn't it? I mean, all of those things coming together. Yeah. And so how long have you been in the role now? Uh, this is 10 years. Yeah, in April okay. of this year, it was 10 years. So it, it's in some ways it's gone so fast and in other ways it's been the longest 10 years of my life. <laughs> I'm sure you've learned a lot. Absolutely. So it's mainly young people. How, how old does young people yeah. go? Yeah, so look, it, and I guess that this is where the word teen challenge gives the wrong impression because it started with, you know, if anyone knows the cross and the switchblade and the, um, you know, David Wilkinson who started teen challenge in 1958 in the, in, uh, on the streets of New York, if you know that story, um, they obviously back in that time it was just teenagers that they were dealing with because it was the it was the street gangs. They were made up of like you know 14, 15, 16 year olds. So Teen Challenge is obviously a global name and it's in you know 145 countries. But the word Teen Challenge give, gives people the wrong concept of who we are. Because we take people in our centres, you know, in our men's centre from 18 years of age up to 45 and in our women's centre at the moment 18 to 39. So it's not just teenagers that we're dealing with. We're going on a little bit of a journey about looking at how we can convey that message better because, you know, sometimes that word teen in, the, in our um, branding actually, you know, it stops people from looking any further. Oh, they're only dealing with teenagers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I said to you when I first met you, oh, I thought you were part of Teen Ranch. Yes. You know, the the yes. horse camps for young girls, which is completely, completely different. different. Well, Jesus is still central, isn't he, in them both, but yeah, very different kind of yeah. ministries. And so what have you learned about 
people with addictions and how Christ is at work in that? Look, it has been an amazing journey. And I mean, I have a personal story in amongst all of that. You know, we had a son who had an addiction. And uh, so this was way before we came into Teen Challenge. So I did understand it from, you know, that grassroots level. But coming into Teen Challenge, the problem is great in terms of so many that are suffering with addictions. And when I first came into Teen Challenge, uh, we just had a men's centre and our women's centre was about at lock-up stage when I came on as um, the CEO. So one of my first jobs was to open that women's centre. And so, you know, in November 2011, which is 10 years ago now, we um, opened the doors to our first women. And, you know, we've been on a real journey in, in that respect as well, because even dealing with addictions with men and women are very, very different. You know, one of the things that I've seen is that women just have so many barriers that they have to overcome to be able to seek the help that they need. But more and more we are seeing, you know, it, it used to be, you know, three to one in terms of addictions. It was three men to one woman, but now it's really 50-50. And we're seeing women that are just not coping. People have this stereotype of what a person looks like that has an addiction. But, you know, let me tell you, they come in all shapes and sizes and they come from every economic level. Addiction has no socioeconomic boundary. We have white collar workers, professionals, we have blue collar workers, we have young people. There are lots of um, mums who that don't cope with life. There are lots of women whose husbands leave them and they're left with their children and they're just not coping. So they turn to drink or they turn to illicit drugs or they turn to prescription drugs, which is a huge problem. So there's a whole range of things, but then those women the barriers for them is, you know, there's always the stigma involved, of course, but even further from that, you know, the women have the children. And so for them, it's that scary part of, you know, if they don't have a family to look after those children while they come into rehab, the only other choice they have is to put them into care. And then that you know, for them, the fear that surrounds that, what does that mean? Will I ever get my children back? And so we've journeyed, had to journey so much with women around that. And, you know, addiction is a terrible thing. It steals a person's life. They become a person that they never believed they would be. They come into the doors of Teen Challenge. They really come in and you see the hopelessness in their eyes. They have no real goals for the future because they believe there is no future. But when they come into Teen Challenge, the difference that we make is, is that we don't just have best practice, which is very important. We do have best practice in rehabilitation, but it's the God factor. Because, you know, only God can bring healing to the brokenness that is there in these women, you know. And many of them come in that have been sexually abused or have come out of the sex industry as well. There's such a variety of people that we deal with. But, you know, it's always the same answer, though. You know, God's always the answer. We have a great program that's set up there. We deal with all of the things that we, with their addiction, their relapse. There's a whole lot of training and teaching around all of that. But what we are passionate about is what are the underlying issues? Because that's what got you there in the first place. 
that's what we really endeavor to help them walk through that journey of discovering what those underlying issues are and facing those issues, getting healing in their heart from those issues, seeing our family members reunited and reconciled. We, that happens so much in our program because you see, we're not just about the number, how many numbers are in our centers. We're about that person, seeing them come to a place and being able to live out the destiny that God created them for. And we're passionate. We are so passionate about that. So, you know, that's what Teen Challenge offers in terms of, I think, that makes us very different from other rehabs. You mentioned that there's always an underlying issue. I was actually going to ask you, is addiction ever a cause? Is it always a consequence of another cause? I mean, there are those that do, just through peer pressure sometimes, just, you know, start down that path. But they're usually in some sort of a rebellious stage to start with, and that usually still depicts that there's some sort of issues underneath there. You know, I know for even for our son, for instance, I could just give you an example of that. So it's not, I guess it's not always... It's not always an underlying issue, but I would say 99.9% of the time it is. But, you know, my, our son, he was a, uh, an apprentice chef and they have to work under enormous pressure and um, split shifts and they're just, the hours are ridiculous. And we never wanted him to go into that profession, but he was so good at it and, they, and he just ended up there. Uh, and then one night the head chef flicked him a pill and said, um, mate, this will help you to get through the, the shift. And of course it did. And that was the start of an addiction for him. So he relied on that to get him through the shifts and then it just went from there. Such a tiny start, isn't it, to what I'm sure ended up being yes. so... Yes, there's some stories awful. around that, that's for sure. Yeah. And so when people do go into rehab with teen challenge how long are they generally there do you have a sort of a fixed mm. program we do have a program but you know um, it's not a jail so people can leave at any time we have a 12-month program because in our experience it takes 12 months really for them to get to a place of real wholeness in their life However, you know, we've had others that have left much earlier than that, you know, in, the, in their time with us. So there are exit points at like three months and six months. We will encourage them to stay because we know that the longer they're in the program, that they have a much better chance of really being able to do well back out in the community. Many of those that finish our program will do an internship with us for a further 12 months which is fantastic as well because that gives them another year of mentoring and just building up responsibility within the centre. They assist the caseworkers and and we have a very, very good transition program as well of how we transition them back into their community again because we've got some great community partners up in Toowoomba. Once they're in transition, they do work experience or study and many of those work experiences lead to employment as well. So we've had lots of that happen too. So we're really invested in them. This is not about just come in, do the program and out, out you go because we then have an aftercare program as well. So we um, have someone that 
that really follows up all of those that have finished not just the 12 month program but finished at different points you know along that 12 month program where she walks a journey with them helping them just to readjust and really keeping in contact with them to make sure they're going okay offering them help and assistance you know all of that sort of thing so we really do put a lot of effort into walking that journey with them because for us success is seeing them two, three, five years down the track, you know, married with children, doing life well. That's what success is for us. And do you see any of them come to faith? Absolutely. I would say 99% of them through that program. It is a Christian-based program. They do go to church on a Sunday. They also have, you know, when they get to a certain point in their program, they can um, join into life groups within the church that they're attending. But, you know, they're not Bible bashed and they're not forced, but God has a way of, and his love has a way of being able to, you know, infiltrate the hardest of hearts. So very few of them would come through the program and not come out of that without a faith in God. And, you know, that's what makes a difference. Yeah. That is very encouraging to hear. That's lovely. It is. And I guess something else that really, you know, we do all of that without any funding. Well, I was actually going to ask. Yeah. No government funding at all. Our crisis accommodation in Brisbane, that's been funded like for 40 years. but So that has been funded, but we still run a Christian program through that. But the core business, which is running two big rehab centres, as you can imagine what that would cost to run, we have to raise all of our own funds for that. And the reason is because I always want Teen Challenge to keep the main thing the main thing, and that's our Christian ethos, because we've had funding at different times, but it may be for capacity building, which allows you to employ another caseworker or different projects that we've had. But once you have funding for your day-to-day business, then the dictates come of what you can and can't deliver. And on my watch, we certainly will never capitulate to that because we will never move away from what our mission is because that, that's who we are. That's what God created us to be. I never want Teen Challenge Queensland to experience mission drift. I want us always to remain the true north, which is, is God, you know, as our centre. And he has seen us through the toughest of tough times. And that's probably a whole other podcast we could have around all of that. You know, I often laugh saying my, my fingernails used to be a lot longer than this, but, you know, they're quite short now because I've had to hang on to the edge of the cliff for too long, you know. <laughs> and, you know, people often ask me, um, you know, what's it like to lead Teen Challenge? And I'll often chuckle and say, well, you know, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> and that is, it just adds to the size of the job, doesn't it? To have yes. to also have that ongoing funding huge. coming through. It's huge, yeah. yeah. But, you know... Let me tell you, when I sit there and I see those young people complete their program and doing life well, and I still to this day, after 10 years, cry at all of the completions because that's what we live for. To see how they come in and then to see how they leave is nothing short of miraculous. And, you know, and as I often say, Teen Challenge is not about behaviour modification. We're into life transformation, and that's what we get to see. Look, don't get me wrong, we have the sad stories as well. Um, You know, that's life. You know, the Word of God tells us that it's God's will that all would be saved. 
all are offered salvation, but not all will receive. And it's the same with anything that we do, you know. But let me tell you, it makes a big difference to that, to those that do choose that way. And it makes a huge difference, not just to them, but to all of those that their family, their friends. For every person that suffers with addiction, there's at least 18 people that are directly affected, which I think is conservative. I think it's more than that. But so, you know, when a one person's life is changed, it's a ripple effect. It, change, it has a huge effect on all those around. And so not just to the people that come into our centres, the men and women that come in, come to the Lord, but it has this incredible effect to the whole families. Like we've seen whole families, you know, come to the Lord, come to faith. It's just amazing. And what a privilege that you get to hear and see all of these stories over Absolutely. years and years and years. Do you have a favourite Bible verse that you can share with us, Joanne? Oh, look, I do, I do. It's John fifteen five, where it talks about, you know, that we are the vine, you know, that we're engrafted into him. And it says that we produce much fruit, you know, when we're connected to him. But, you know, the last part of that verse says to us that, you know, without him, we can do nothing. And that has been something that's always kept me very, very centered because no matter what platform I have or where I, you know, what privilege I've had of leading this organization and in all other th walks of my life as well, I totally understand that apart from God, I can do absolutely nothing of eternal value. And then what keeps you standing firm in Christ, Joanne? I don't want to ask how old you are on podcast land, but I'm guessing there's a few decades of experience you've had. Yeah, a few decades, yeah. Look, you know, I think, I think one of the most important things, which, you know, probably is getting a little bit lost now in this, this, the generation that I see now, is that, you know, we, we have to have a love for God's word. You know, that's where I cut my teeth, you know, in, in terms of studying the word. Um, it was central to me. And so that word that is stored in your heart, let me tell you, if you haven't had that word stored in your heart when the storm comes, you're not going to stand. We're doing, um, recording a podcast now, but, you know, I've been one that is a, a podcast listener. I go to bed every night with podcasts going in my ear. If I wake up through the night and I'm not sleeping, it, on it goes. So every opportunity I have, I have the word going in my heart and then try to make a habit of, um, you know, when I'm in the car, you know, praying. You know, we often say our lives are so busy and my life is like extremely busy, but we have to make time to keep the main thing the main thing. If I didn't have a big storehouse of the God, word of God in my heart, I would not have been able to stand the storms that I have had to endure since we've, I've been in this position particularly and, you know, personally as well. You're asking me the one thing I would say to people, please be a lover of God's word. That is a great encouragement to leave us with. So thank you very much and thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute honour. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.